0: Okay, we are live. Hello, Steven Kyoto. Hey, hello there. How are you? This is an exciting one for me for a number of reasons. I want to go all the way back to the late 80s, early 90s. I was probably in in middle school, and there was a place uh, down the street from my house called the 99 Cent Video Clearance Center. And uh, it was right across the street from Blockbuster. And everyone was going to Blockbuster, but every once in a while we would go over there because they had $1 movies that were not new releases and you could keep them for a week. And so they had probably the nerdiest film guys I've ever met working there. And me and my buddies would go in there and we would be like, what, you know, what, what movies do we gotta see? And they would turn us on to like all the trauma team movies, like Toxic Avenger and, and Class of Newcomb High. They talked to me about, um, they're the ones that introduced me to Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, a lot of different things. And then one day I uh, oh, and also Evil Dead, the Evil Dead series and Army of Darkness, and oh, then yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, big one there. I'm a big fan of that. And then, of course, one of them uh that they introduced me to was Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and absolutely loved it, and just became a big part of my childhood. One of the ones where like I would, you know, they'd say, what is this Killer Clowns movie? I'm like, you've got to see it. They've got it at the ninety Cent Video Clearance Center. Go over there and get it. Because they didn't have it many places. And uh, and now here we are. And I get to talk to the man behind Killer Clowns. And so super excited about that. So glad to have you on.
1: Well, oh, thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh,
0: you know, the, the first question I have is, you know, you, you're very specific. You, you work in puppetry animation, stop-motion animation. You teach stop-motion animation. What exactly
1: drew you to that? Oh, actually, uh, I, I can tell you exactly what it was. And uh, I used to live in the Bronx, Bronx, New York, is where I grew up. And uh, at a very young age, I saw Willis O'Brien's 1933 King Kong. Oh, wow. And that was just an amazing image for me because down the block from my apartment, we had these elevated train tracks. And, uh, and, and when I saw it in the movie, when King Kong was rampaging through New York City and he knocked down those trains from the elevated train tracks, it was real for me. It was like he was walking in my neighborhood. And it was like this, it was an amazing image. I remember asking my mom and dad to take me to the Empire State Building where I could see the, uh, the crack in the cement that he made when he fell. It was absolutely real. This fantastic fantasy creature in my real neighborhood uh, set me on a path to uh, fantasy filmmaking.
0: Man. Uh, so Were you, were you just fan, a fan of
1: monster movies in particular or all movies? Is there some genre that you were really into? No, at that time, it was really monster movies. My brother, Charlie, my older brother, Charlie, and I lived in the Bronx, and uh, we'd go to the movies all the time. We would see everything. Uh, The Ray Harryhausen films, they had to be monster-oriented. It was funny. (laughs) We would see uh, monster movies, not really horror films, but monster films with giant creatures. In fact, the the early Toho productions, like Godzilla and Rodan, we loved those films too, but it was just a giant monster attacking the city really um, uh, uh, hit home for us. But it was interesting. It was something different. Even as a, at a young age, we knew there was something different between, let's say, the Japanese monster movies and the effects work of Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen in the performance of the monsters. It was just something more engaging about them. There were stronger characters. And as we grew older, we realized that uh, the Japanese movies were Men in Suits and the other films were stop-motion animation, something we knew nothing about. Hmm. Wow. So how does one get into this work? Well, I guess I would have to thank Forrest J. Ackerman and his famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. That was our entry into the world of filmmaking. Like I said, we were fans of the movies. We had no idea. Um, It's not like living in L.A. where you might be living next to a DP or a director or a a screenplay writer. No, in New York, we didn't have any of those kind of contacts. So things we saw on television, things we saw in the theater, uh, we didn't know where they came from. But we had this fascination. So when we saw Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, they'd show some behind the scenes of how these things were done. And we realized, wow, people make these things. Hmm. And uh, I think it was in 1960, uh, m- my parents, we moved out to the country. Long Island <laughs> in <laughs> the 60s was the country. More uh-huh. more trees than houses back then. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it, it's a rather an odd way to get involved in filmmaking. Uh, we used to... We used to buy like eight millimeter movies of raised movies and all these horror films that you can get on a, like an eight millimeter and you needed a projector in order to show them. So we got our parents to buy a projector, but instead they, they bought like a camera projector type kit. Hmm. So Charlie went up in the attic months before Christmas and saw that we had a camera and a projector and we started designing, making movies. We started doing puppetry and, and, And taking our models and our blocks and our army men and dinosaur models and started making movies. And little by little, we learned how to animate frame by frame, stop motion with an eight millimeter camera. And I was like 10 years old. Charlie was 12. And we were making movies in the basement. Wow. That's awesome. That's so great. What I love
0: about that story right there is that, you know, you had a dream. You had a passion from a very young, young age. And you pursued it. And it's obviously been per- per- successful.
1: Yeah, very fortunate. I mean, I mean, I tell my children and, and and everybody I know, my students as well, follow that passion. If you can follow that and find a way to earn a living, you're being a, in a good, good spot in life. And many people don't. Maybe some people aren't as lucky and they don't find it or they don't pursue their interests for other reasons. But uh, I've been very fortunate in that respect that I just had this passion never as an opportunity for a job never for a way of making money it was just a form of play that mm. i did as a child and it's just what i wanted to do without any regard to any financial impact
0: do you ever wake up do you, sorry to interrupt you but do you ever wake up some days and just go i'm living the dream like i'm doing what i always wanted to do i'm getting to play with these animations and, and do these things i mean does that ever hit you like that
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, as I get older now, I, I realize how how lucky I am. I'm making this transition from let's say production to academia with mm-hmm. my college and teaching, and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get out of production, but things are going really well right now. So uh-huh. the transition's been kind of challenging, and I'm thinking. I said I've had a, I've had a pretty good creative career. So many people come to Hollywood, and you know they work for other productions, and they do, and I and and you work for other creatives, and it's really satisfying. But to come to a new city, not a, not, not a local, and actually carve out a career. And we've made a TV show. My brothers and I, we've made a TV. We've done a motion picture. We've written a book. We've done a, a, a holiday special. Uh, and it's our own work. It's, it's our own ideas. And that's pretty unique. So we're very fortunate. And um, we had a great career just doing contract work, working with Tim Burton. Uh, Working with Matt and Trey on on Team America and John Favreau. I mean, we've, yeah, I'm very lucky.
0: Yeah, you've worked with the who's who in in Hollywood. I mean, you've been on some of the most famous movies of all time. And one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to bring up, which I I found super fascinating. I just learned this uh, actually today was that, you know, you, before Killer Clowns, you were working on Fairy Tale theater with Shelley Duvall. Yeah. 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 It was there, you were building
1: yeah. sets, is that right? Was that your, what you were doing? I think it was special props. I okay. mean, there was a, 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 the art director, Mike, Mike Erler, he would build the sets and uh, and then it would be a special prop, like the magic mirror in Snow White mm-hmm. or um, well, a, a giant sea serpent puppet for the, uh, the mermaid, was it? The, the yeah. Little Mermaid. So we were always called in to do those specialty props. Mm. Okay.
0: Well, was there one in particular? Because they did a, a series of them. I think there might have been
1: six or eight of them. Was there one in particular that was the most fun for you? Oh, they all were unique and special in each way. The very first one we did was the the Emperor and the Nightingale. Oh, and yeah. the Emperor was Mick Jagger. Yeah. Shelly was just contact anybody she liked and ask them if they wanted to be on her show. And all of the big celebrities in the 80s and 90s, they just they wanted to be a part of it. So there I was. We made a mechanical bird, a clockwork bird that was radio controlled. And Mick Jagger was the one. I was sitting there with him while we were doing the scene, operating the puppet. It was a blast. And then we Thank did uh, Pinocchio with uh, Paul Rubens as Pinocchio and Carl Reiner as Thank Geppetto. <laughs> And those two guys on the set were just a riot. And Vanessa Redgrave, she was the queen. Oh, she was beautiful. She was uh, Princess uh, uh, Guinevere, Queen Guinevere from Camelot. And we were working with her. Uh, And then we worked with Francis Ford Coppola on Riff and Winkle with Eiko, the Japanese designer. It was a great time. And Tim Burton, we worked with Tim Burton on Aladdin and His Magic Lamp. That's yeah
0: it's so crazy how you think about that sometimes it's fun when you look back i'm a big fan of film just in general um just the history of it and you got to think i mean for people who haven't seen fairy tale theater i mean you're you're not joking it was the it was the who's who of i mean they were the the most famous stars were on these shows i mean robin williams was in it uh, on the princess and the frog and we had um mark hamill was in jack and the beanstalk i mean you know, they, these were like the guys who were, I mean, he's coming off of Star Wars, you know, and he's doing a fairy Tale theater. It was, it, it, that was a, a lot of fun for the kids back then. And um, that's it. So you, you went from that to, to pitching killer
1: clowns. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that's, that's my philosophy. I keep on telling people work gets work and good work gets good work. Right. Uh, we we working for fairytale theater for a couple of years and Fred Fuchs, who was the uh, one of the producers? He he came to us and said, "Hey guys, I know some people that have some money for low budget films. Do you have any ideas that you want to pitch?" And we had this thing called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. So we went in with Fred Fuchs to Transworld Entertainment, pitched it, and uh, our first pitch we sold it in the room. We uh, we had the pitch. Charlie did a uh, my brother Charlie did a poster, and I had this. but I have it right here. <laughs> I did a maquette. Uh, oh, wow. This is, this is the uh, the sales pitch. It was a clown. Oh, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of there. A clown holding a puppet with a ray gun. And that was the joke. It's killer clowns in outer space. That's and so awesome.
2: Was That's motion. the
0: original thing? That right there is the original yeah. sales pitch? That's wow.
1: it? I think we had yeah. one that was painted. This is a casting of it, but this is the original sculpt. Yeah. Wow. That's what they look like.
0: That's. <laughs> so explain, because there's a lot of people who don't probably understand the pitching process. How rare is it that you sell in the room? I mean, how,
1: how, how, how that, that had to have been rare, right? Oh, well, over the, the course of the last 35 years of my career, I've yet to sell another feature film. So it is rare. <laughs> and it was just so dumb we went in there. And we just pitched this idea, uh, and pitching for those who don't know, it's just presenting a concept. You talk about the storyline, you talk about the characters, and if you have the skill set, like Charlie could paint and I could sculpt, we actually came with some kind of uh, a visual aids to kind of show them the concept. Uh, and when we sold it, we said, "Wow, this is easy," <laughs> but we've never do <laughs> it again. And mind you, we've been pitching since. <laughs> oh, we've been pitching. It's like a second occupation for us. It's a sideline. We come up with our ideas, we go around, we stop pitching ideas and stuff. And it, uh, well, sometimes it works. We pitched uh, a TV show to CBS in the 90s called The Amazing Life Sea Monkeys, and we got that on the air.
0: Nice.
1: Uh, we pitched uh, Alien Christmas based on a book that I wrote with Jim Strain. Uh, and uh, John Favreau liked it, and we pitched it, and we got a Netflix special. So it's worked over the time, but it's, not as easy as it was that first time we did it right well let's let's talk about that
0: because that's the thing you that there had to been stars aligning there because i do know you you were doing that movie in a time that's so different than now because you could make a movie and not do necessarily great in the theater but then you have vhs which could create kind of like a, a cult fault like there was a video rental market where you could you, you know, that's
1: where a lot of the cult classics came from, right? Yeah, but it's interesting. It's It doesn't seem so unique. I'll tell you the analogy here. You're right. In those days, they had the blockbusters. They had the video outlet. And they were looking for content, desperate content, to kind of fill the need. Once you rented a film, what more do you have? They, in order to keep the businesses going, they needed new content all, all the time. That's the reason why we got funding for Killer Clowns. It really mm-hmm. was... Unbeknownst to us, according to the executives and the financial people, it was a direct-to-video thing. They just Mm -hmm. released it in a couple of cities around the country without putting a big theatrical push behind it because they made a million-dollar sale directly to, let's say, the video stores. Mm -hmm. Very disappointing to us, but that was the model. Now you go 30 years into the future. Here we are at another realm where you've got streaming services, Netflix, Mm -hmm. Hulu, All of these guys, Amazon, looking for content. So now it's the same thing, or at least it was in the last six years or so. Now it's kind of cutting down. They're spending billions of dollars on content to fulfill their libraries so they can become the number one streamers. Mm -hmm. So it really is the same exact thing that happened in the 80s is happening now with a different technology. And you're going to see, okay, who's going to win the streaming wars? Who's going to be the new content provider? but it's given everybody an opportunity like it gave us in the eighties. It's giving young filmmakers. You don't have a track record who might not get the big budgets for, let's say the, the major networks mm-hmm. or a major theater chain or a studio, but it's giving them an opportunity to make content that they have a distribution for. And even the internet is another way to go too. Vimeo and all these platforms where before, if you made a film, you might get a chance to show it in a film festival somewhere in the, in the world. But now you could do content pretty much the same quality that we do with the same equipment, the same software and get distribution on the internet through a variety of different uh, platforms. So it's kind of democratizing, I think, the creative process. Now you can do content and get it out there.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you ever do anything
1: like that? Have you ever tried to just do something on your own? Oh, yeah. 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 I have, uh, We have a thing called Channel 8 from outer space about alien. <laughs> About a, uh, a pirate TV station on a little asteroid somewhere, stealing signals from all over the universe, and it's <laughs> just creating this uh, alien content. That's a great nice. idea. We've got. Nice. Uh, oh, we have tons. I, I think called uh, the interdimensional safari. About you go on, on you go into different dimensional portals and you go hunting for animals. It's uh, mm-hmm. all these great ideas that we're trying to launch on the internet because you know it's it's easy access. It's really hard. Now, again, it's getting increasingly more difficult to actually get those deals. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's kind of filled up. And now Netflix is so big. They're looking around the planet for producers of creative material. And they're going for like the big dogs, I call them. Mm. Uh, People that have known name, uh, known quantities or known quality work that is more international. So Mm. it's getting a little tougher than it was when they first started the uh, streaming wars interesting well back
0: to the killer clowns so tell me i mean this is your first this is dir- your directorial debut right you pitch this movie and that on the first shot they're like yeah do it let's go you don't mm. did you have a script or, you, was it still an idea
1: how long have you been working on it oh it's just an idea uh i i i was always c- kind of conjuring up different ideas and one one day i started asking myself okay what's the most frightening image i could think of uh, a scene and and i imagine myself driving up a lonely mountain road and and a car passes me and i look to see who it is and it's a clown driving you know (laughs) in a car and to me a clown being where it shouldn't be is is scary and then it kind of launched off from there from outer space and all that stuff so it was pretty much just that much of an idea i think we might have had a treatment i think we banged together a little scenario based on, oh, do you remember the 1957 Steve McQueen version of The Blob?
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, yeah. I love that movie. To me, that's the classic 60s sci-fi movie. You've got teenagers trying to convince an, uh, <laughs> the adult community that there's something out there that's killing everybody. And nobody believes them, and it's a battle. Mm-hmm. So I, we took that framework, and we just kind of gave it a loose, we, we just put Clowns from Outer Space in there doing... Uh, it's like circus motif and clown gags, what we call cotton, uh, uh, candy-coated kills.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, that, that's what
1: I like about
0: that movie, right? Like my kids, my, my boys are 16 and 9. My my daughters want nothing to do with anything that's horror film or clowns. They're scared to death of them. But my two boys, they love it. And what I loved about the movie is, yeah, you get, you get a few scares, uh, but it's also pretty funny. And so it's a good kind of introduction into the genre of horror. Um, And so I really, like that's why my kids, both of my kids this Christmas, they got got Killer Clowns t-shirts. Cause I mean, you got so much merchandise out there now. It's like, it's more popular
1: now than it was even then. That's really surprising to me. It is more popular. We go to conventions, we meet fans and we talk about what they like and how they were introduced to the film. And it's very much like what you've said, people who grew up in the eighties who might've seen it on USA cable, or on VHS, they've grown up, they have kids, they share it with their kids because it's a good uh, entry into the genre, as you put it. It's not mm. so scary. It's more. It's really a sci-fi comedy with some horror elements. And mm. I think it's a gateway to that whole horror genre. It's very safe. So it's kind of multi-generational now. And, uh, but the fact that it's actually so popular is a kind of a mystery. Why now? I mm. sometimes think it might be, just the crazy world we live in now Mm -hmm. that it's so it's so wacky it's like alice in wonderland it's just just everything is it's like bizarro land and 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 superman things are are crazy so i would see people kind of coming to this sense of humor in this film and just kind of saying oh yeah yeah this is this is my world now yeah well and that's one of the questions i asked i wanted to ask you was
0: because yeah like the movie in some In some ways, is just so funny because of how just for me, I'm sitting there. I'm like, these clowns are coming from outer space and killing. Like the concept is like ridiculously funny in itself, right? It's just kind of a funny thing, and at the same time, you have the horror element because yeah, they're clowns. They're creepy, you know. Uh, So yeah, I
1: just it's it's a spin on something familiar. It spins on. I mean, uh, one of the one of the deep ideas in it is that you. Uh, the way people just surrender their children to the lap of a clown or santa claus or something these these people in costumes and and it's just so it's so foolish that you don't know who these people are and you don't know what their intentions are so we played with that with the 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 social acceptance of these iconic images they might not be what you think they are and uh and like the shadow gag you know you see a clown out there performing some kind of entertainment you you are like moths to a flame you go to it and then you realize wait a second that clown is not really too cool looking it's kind of odd and then it's too late you're trapped in the jaws of the clown so we were playing with that kind of uh social aspect of clowns in our society right? right
0: wow so did you ever expect i mean what were your expectations as the movie was going on uh did you have expectations on how well it would do
1: uh, no, we were brand new to all of this industry. Uh, like I said, it's the first feature we made. We, we just wanted to make a film that we wanted to see. It really is that simple. And I would encourage people who are making films, who want to make films, just do it that way. Don't make something you think people are going to like. Just do what you like. And you'd be surprised if it's a genuine expression with truths attached to it. If it's genuine. I think people will attach themselves to it. I think they'll, they'll gravitate to, to the project. That's all it was. We filled it with all the stuff that we loved from the 50s and 60s movies. I mean, there's so many iconic images in there that we put a spin on, but they're really um, images that we, we were raised on, like Forbidden Planet, a really great sci-fi film. Uh, remember the power chamber, the Krell Laboratories down in the burrows of the planet? That's the uh, power chamber in inside the tent that whole shot is really based on that and the cocoons from invasion of the body snatchers and a little bit of looney tunes uh there's duck twacy when daffy duck was dick tracy and Mm -hmm. he was going after the uh, neon noodle and the bad guys and you see these footprints he's following footprints on the ground and he picks them up like they're like little flat ones he picks up and we put that in the jail cell so it's a mixture of mad magazine looney tunes sci-fi Oh, and and uh, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs>
0: nice. Did you did you ever expect that you were going to be the director
1: of a cult classic movie? I mean, could you've ever expected that? Oh no, not in a million years. No, we had no expectations on what it would do. I mean, we liked it. We thought it was a pretty funny movie, and mm-hmm. you know, at one point we thought it would be a great midnight movie, sort of mm-hmm. like, um, oh, what's that midnight movie? Uh, rocky horror picture show right, I mean, right so many elements in the film that once you know those silly lines like what are you going to do with those pies boys um mm-hmm. there's a there's an interactivity that you could have there in fact we did at one convention we did have like a slightly interactive uh screening of it where at one point when mike and debbie are, are escaping from the circus tent and the mm-hmm. clown shoots popcorn at them we had people in the audience with popcorn, and when they shot the popcorn, they threw it in the air, and the whole theater exploded with popcorn. <laughs> it was great.
0: That's <laughs> awesome.
1: Where did and you then, do that? Which Comic Con was that at? Oh, actually, was at Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It was their first? I think it was their first, their first convention. And uh, I remember the the hotel. It wasn't in a the theater. It was like in, like in a little lobby hotel. You know how they have their meeting uh-huh, uh-huh. areas and. They were really pissed off because the place was just inundated with popcorn. And <laughs> we didn't clean up. They had to, uh, but it was great. It was great fun. It, and there were so many other opportunities in, in that show that would be great. We went to one screening in uh, Chicago at the Magic Box Theater. And I recreated an animation of the shadow gag hmm. that we projected on the, on the curtains. So we had a clown come out of the audience and put his little bag down and actually went up there and started doing some shadows. And then we had the spotlight that had animation on it. And he actually did a live shadow gag for the audience. Oh, it nice. Was great. That's so I awesome. wish we could do more of that. Did
0: you, uh, has there been any talk? Because right now, I mean, it seems like sequels from the 80s are a big thing. Has there been any talk yeah. of sequels?
1: Uh, we've been talking about it since
0: 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that there's not, I mean, with, with this cult classic, I mean, with this cult classic, uh, kind of genre now, uh, and all these movies being remade, sequels coming out, you know, Cobra Kai is huge on Netflix and all these different things. I'm surprised somebody hasn't approached you and had interest in, in doing a killer clowns too.
1: Me too. Well, it, it's a, it's always rights are, <coughs> securing rights are really complicated. Mm. <laughs> um, We had two or three bats at it at various times over the years. We pitched something at the people of NGM, MGM who controls the property. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the right mix. It's really a matter of luck. You can pitch and pitch and people will like the idea, but they're not maybe, maybe they don't have the power to get it produced. They don't have the financing behind them. They'll love the project, but they don't have the mechanism to get it funded. Mm -hmm. Or for some reason, they don't see it fitting their lineup or they have something similar. So there's a lot of reasons why, that don't mm. really reflect on the quality of the of the material. Um, mm. But it's interesting, uh, there was a time, I think it was MGM was going to be <laughs> making a deal with sci-fi, mm. sci-fi channel. They were making a sequel to Critters, they were doing something with Critters that we didn't want to get involved in because it wasn't, wasn't a very big budget. Uh, but then they were going to do Clowns for like two million dollars. And, and happily, the people at MGM thought it was worth more than just doing a $2 million knockoff. Hmm. Uh, And I really appreciated that because anybody could just do what they want with the property. but I think they recognize our involvement that, and I believe this, I'll say it, uh, any killer clowns without us involved is not gonna be what I think the fans are gonna want. I think we're, I think the brothers are a big part of that franchise or that property, that IP. And in fact, it's kind of proven Uh, an outside company, uh, Good Shepherd Entertainment, uh, a game company, licensed the uh, rights to uh, do a video game. And they contacted uh, TerraVision in Badoga, uh, uh, in Brazil. And uh, they produced it, but they got us involved. They hired us as consultants and in uh, creative advisors to make sure that uh, it was authentic. They were creating a, the 1980s movie. They wanted to make it as authentic as they can in both the clown's look and the tone of the um, the kills. Mm. So we were very happy to be included in that. And they did a great job. They really were in sync with what we wanted. And it was a really wonderful collaboration. So we are really looking forward to the game. We've played it and it's it's a lot of fun. It's, it's what I think a lot of the fans, it's like the next step in its entertainment. Mm. You get to be... People running away from the clowns. It's what do they call it? An asymmetrical multiplayer game where you can team up with people. It's three clowns and seven people fighting. And you can be clowns. So you can be uh any one of our killer or tiny or shorty, whatever they call them. And you have all you have the cocoon gun, you got balloon dogs. It's just it's all of our gags in an interactive gameplay. It's it should be pretty cool. I think fans are gonna like it.
0: I'm excited for it. I actually went to GameStop like two, three weeks ago and I asked when a release date is and they have, they didn't have it yet. So hopefully we have it coming up soon.
1: But so. It's coming up. I mean, it's done. We've played it. And I think uh, my son's in the gaming industry and they have to debug it. They've yeah. got to play it and play it. There's a beta version they're going to release to give people an opportunity to play it and kind of work out some of the bugs. It's so complicated yeah. how they do this, how they program this, all the interactivity and the possibilities I, i'm amazed but uh it's gonna be pretty cool
0: yeah i'm excited you mentioned critters that's another one from my childhood you know that was that was a cool movie because it, it came out right around I, I think gremlins came before it and it had huge success and so they started doing critters ghoulies like all these kind of little monsters and uh, and you were involved in critters now i've i remember one and two as a kid three and
1: four i just recently saw were you involved in all four of them yeah, uh, we, our company produced the critter effects on all four of them. Wow, uh, the brothers were more closely involved with one and two, but uh, when, he, when 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 uh, New Line did three and four, we were so busy with so much stuff, we actually had a, a another team working with us, and it was a low budget. They were low budget films. It was really hard to produce what I think the vision they had in their minds on on the. Uh, on the budget that we had for those films. So it it kind of suffered, I think, a little bit. But they're both, I think, the fans like them. They're just, it continues, but I think it's a pretty unique little monster character. They're kind of funny, they're very deadly, and a lot of creative kills, which is always what people like. So, yeah, yeah, I remember the first one being
0: kind of more uh, serious horror, and the second one kind of became more humorous. Yeah. Uh, And so... uh, so, so talk, talk with us about the creation of a critter or a killer clown. Like, What, what is it that you, you do to create that? Do they, do they give you an idea, or do they kind of give you a license? Do they give you a framework?
1: Well, well I'll, uh, I'll answer that with, uh, with critters. Uh, um, as Stephen Herrick was directing, and Brian Muir wrote the script. And in the script, it said fur balls with teeth was the mm. description of these. And they were mostly mouth. And in conversations with, uh, with both of them, and the producers, Rupert Harvey, uh, they wanted to create something that didn't look like a man in a suit. It, it defied human anatomy. But it was mostly, as they described in the script, a fur ball with teeth. So my brother Charlie started doing sketches, and we started thinking, okay, what's, what's out there that kind of is reminiscent of this? And the image of... Charlie did a bunch of drawings, uh, a four-legged version of it, like a dog with a big mouth with a lot of uh, shark teeth. But then we we thought of um, the Tasmanian Devil from the Warner Brothers cartoons. That mm. character had small arms uh, and, and had that shape, and it was all mouth, it was all mouth. So we started doing variations of something like that, and Charlie came up with that design. I did a maquette, just like the Killer clowns. I would do a sculpture. That's what Charlie and I did in the early 80s. There was so much competition for special effects work that I think we were one of the, one of the first people to actually try to bid on a job with actual artwork. Charlie would do the drawings and I would do a three-dimensional version of it. That actually was the first three-dimensional visualization of a concept. And I think that gave us a leg up on a lot of companies in those days, early on, because Mm. I wondered how many people actually did that. So when they saw this maquette, which is pretty much a preliminary version of the design we went with, we got the job.
2: Oh wow! Also,
1: I'll also mention, thanks to Kevin Yeager, who had just worked for New Line Cinema, and he did the effects on the the, um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And then when Critters came up, they wanted to give him Critters. And he said, no, 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 I'm busy with this. Why don't you have the Kyoto Brothers do that? So him mentioning our names was a really good leg up. And that was our first, uh, the first show that we have a keyed. And keying a show means we were responsible for all of the Critter gags. And that was a big deal for us. It really put us on the map as an effects company.
0: So when you say you were in charge of all the gags, what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, well, uh, you just don't make one puppet that does everything. Uh, mm-hmm. There was uh, a different gags in the, in the film. Um, the kid threw a firecracker at one of the critters, and the critter puts it in his mouth. We had to make a specialty blow-up puppet that actually had balloons in his mouth. So he would go, his cheeks would flare oh. up and balloon up. That's a specialty puppet. And then smoke came out of his mouth. So there was a tube that we blew smoke through. Uh, there were uh, uh, puppets that we threw. There were puppets that we rolled uh, and had turned around the corners. Oh, it's, I have so many funny stories about the high tech and the low tech solutions that we tried to make the critter balls roll on command, and it ended up the expensive radio controlled ball that we developed didn't work on location. So we ended up just creating these balls, and we would put a weight inside that was offset from the center. And then we would roll it, and it would go around the corner, depending on what (laughs) side the weight was on. Uh, Really low-tech things. But uh, if you look at the film, every time a critter did something, it was usually a special puppet that was made just for that shot. There's one walking shot where the critter walks and jumps into the toilet bowl. That was a critter with a little motor in him, with his legs moving like this. And he was on wires on a trolley, like an overhead trolley. And the power for the motor was through the wires that powered, and you couldn't see the wires, but they powered the legs and we just made him walk just a quarter of an inch above the ground and he just scooted along the ground. Oh, that's so one awesome. puppet That puppet for that one shot. Wow.
0: So when you say you were in charge of all the gags, you mean they had the gags written and they needed you in charge of creating everything.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. They wrote wow. them and then we had to figure out how we could uh, implement them, get them ready for wow. shooting.
0: That's awesome.
1: So then another one that
0: you did, which I wanted to t- touch on, which is one of my favorites from a childhood, is Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And of uh, course, the most the most famous scene is a character really from that show is Large Marge, other than Pee Wee. Everyone remembers Don't Forget Large Marge sent you. And you did Yeah. You 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 did the actual stop
1: uh animation for the part where she turns into the ghost. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's very fortunate. I mean, when I think back at our career, we've done some of the key shots in a lot of motion pictures. Yeah. And Large Marge is one of them. I mean, it was just very lucky. I remember Rick Heinrichs, uh, Tim Burton's like a creative partner in those times, he contracted the effects. And there were two effect shots in there. We had stop motion. There was the dinosaur that had the bike, the giant dinosaur. And mm-hmm. it was this Large Marge effect. And he said, which, which one do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I like dinosaurs. I, wanted, I Let me do the dinosaur shot. He goes, oh, no rick wanted he wanted to do that shot so i said shit how are we going to do large march how do we approach this (laughs) so it was an interesting challenge what we ended up doing was we did a um a head cast of alice nunn the actress Mm -hmm. and we made a clay positive a thin clay positive of her face and then we made these replacement eyes and we got her wig the wig she wore in the uh show and we got her wardrobe and we dressed this clay image this clay puppet of alice nunn to be large marge and i animated it we sculpted frame by frame all the transition from from large uh, from i guess marge to large marge wow. and it was all based on tim's drawings I and mean, tim did some really very specific key drawings key poses he wanted to see it, it hit and rick heinrichs did a storyboard that kind of blocked it all out but once the, the change started it was me hand sculpting frame by frame, the, the transformation it took about 12 hours, maybe Thir- yeah 12 or 13 hours to make. It. Wow.
0: See, that's the thing I love you know, we are in this,
1: this age of CGI, which has really changed
0: the movie industry, in my opinion. And in my opinion, this is just my opinion. I'm not a, a Hollywood anybody at all, but as a, as a, a lover of film almost has become a crutch and it, and it makes me, it makes me respect what you and others in, in that time frame in the 80s and 90s did to create these things without computers and without all this technology. I mean, to sit there and think that you sat there for 12, 13 hours and just hand sculpted all of the different things to make this transition that became part of this movie that everybody who watched the movie remembers is the, probably the most memorable scene of the whole show is really something.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm really fortunate, very proud of that. It, it's, it, it really is an iconic moment in, in a really good film. I mean, the way Tim did this, the entire scene, it just blocked out so beautifully, and that was a really great punchline. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean about CG. I mean, c- computers are a great technology. It's a great tool, could do wonderful things, but I, I think the way everybody's using them now, it kind of homogenizes all the effects under one style,
2: mm-hmm. and...
1: When it came to more traditional effects, you saw the hand of the artist, and each studio had a different style to to the effect, using different techniques. So there was a variety and a handmade quality that you know you know it's not real, but there's something more fun about the the handmade quality of the '80s effects as opposed to, let's say, the high-end CG, which which is really impressive, but I, I don't think it has the same impact. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, it really doesn't. It doesn't have the same impact. And on top of that, like I said, it's almost become a crutch. I've noticed that the quality of the story in some of these movies, they're so focused on making these giant, you know, these giant big movies, these giant worlds and, and the character development. Like, for example, like what they did in the King Kong movies. I wasn't into the the 30s uh, King Kong movie as much as I was. I think it came out in the 70s. The one the one that the Universal Studios won. oh yeah yeah
1: Uh, uh de Laurentiis
0: yeah and so but like to to think about how they created those back then versus say King of the Monsters you know the the Godzilla King Kong versus Godzilla movie that just came out still a good movie but I think we'd all agree like the story and character is a little lacking you know what I mean whereas in these other movies you know you you can't just rely on it it becomes a part of a better story does that make sense
1: well, yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of, look, I I think it's easy to add production value through special effects to a movie to make it really, you know, an amazing experience. But I think what people can't do very well, don't do very often, is make a great movie with good, mm-hmm. good characters and a strong story. That's always a challenge. But as far as quality and image image quality and effects, I think... They've reached the top. I mean, they, they can't do much better. It's amazing what they're able to do. I mean, literally, you can do anything now. You really can create any image. But then I feel it is, again, is a, a quality to it. It's like a really great cartoon. It mm-hmm. doesn't really hit that reality. Right. Anything. Like you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny to say, but no matter how real CG is, it's always fake. And no matter mm-hmm. how fake a special effect would be, it's real. Stop motion right. is real. It's a tangible object being photographed by real light, and it's you sense that uh, right. CG, as real as it is, there's always some kind of something about it—the gravity, the weight, the way it's composited. There's something that's it's amazing. You get a reaction, but it doesn't have that same reality. Maybe I'm just old school, but, but that's no, well, my- and maybe
0: maybe that's me too. I mean, you know, maybe you know my my kids always joke about how old I am, but you know, yeah, I and and I make a point. I, you know, as a movie guy to show my kids the movies from the 80s and 90s, you know, those movies that I grew up with and some from the 70s as well, just because I do feel like those, those are good films. They're good movies. You know, they, they love going to all the, all of the Marvel movies. We go to all of them, all the DC movies, we go to all of them. They love all that stuff. But there's something about sitting down and watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure now and seeing all the things they did and all the things that you created and the way that you created it, that's just so different and exciting to watch and so creative. It just seems more, you really have to, you know, it, the computer isn't doing it for you. It's coming from your head, you know, and you're you're making it real.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I know. Show your kids things from the 30s and 40s this yeah. is a great time for motion pictures really the golden age of Hollywood. great yeah. wow. stuff and they, yeah yeah uh yeah I, I i agree it's uh when I think about the films they're just the tentpole pictures they're making now mm-hmm. i mean the, the marvel films and all that they're just really superhero soap operas with big effects so what they'll do is they'll have a they'll have a character moment and then they'll fight a fantastic battle then that'll stop them to have a character moment it's not woven in it's right. like it's comic book or it's like an amusement park and to that i say if i want to go to amusement park i go to amusement park If i want thrills yes. when i go to the movies i want to see story and character so right. they don't really resonate with me that's not the kind of stuff i go for
0: yeah is there a, a movie that you would recommend that you would say in the last 10 years was one that you you were like wow that was amazing
1: oh well actually When I go to the movies, I can probably, I read it, I can figure out the plot ahead of time. I know exactly where they're going. I'm more, I'm not a real good audience anymore. But uh, what's that film? I forget the title. Uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at the Same Time. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. All at once. That was the only film I've seen recently that surprised me. That had me at the edge of my seat waiting for what's going to happen. A thoroughly enjoyable film. That surprised the hell out of me and satisfied me on the character level. It, it was—it's amazing. It's an amazing film. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's one that I—I I make. I haven't—I have not seen it just for been busy. But that's one I definitely want to see. Um, uh, real quick, I want to ask you. Well, I want to talk about a couple more of your movies, but first, you keep bringing up your brothers, and have we ever really talked about them? Uh, you, how many brothers work with you? Is it, you have three of you?
1: yeah there's three of us uh let's say charlie's the oldest he's our art director production designer he does all the sketches and uh, all, that, all that that 2d work in, mm-hmm. uh, in pre-production um, i'm in the middle and i kind of come up with a lot of the concepts and i was a, i was a stop motion animator early on all mm-hmm. during my early career and then i just started yeah um coming up with ideas and and up directing it giving it that storyline the character through lines and all that and my younger brother, Edward, he would manage our company. He did all of the business affairs at Kyoto Brothers. And then he, he stepped up to being a producer and he's, uh, he's a legit producer. In fact, he produced the animation for Marcel, the shell with shoes on. We got mm. involved in that. And oh, awesome. he was key in producing all of that, getting the animation out for the, for the film. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Man, so busy, man. Still- well, anyway, it's a great time for stop motion. Going back to CG, you've got a generation I'm sure your boys and daughter are, they grew up on CG. That was mm-hmm. like the mainstay of their entertainment. And I see this at CalArts, the students that are coming in, they've seen that the, they wanted, they, they've discovered stop motion. It's new to them. It's, it, it's different than CG. And I think that's why you're seeing this resurgence in the, in the, in the technique. I mean, we've got Wendell and Wild. You've got Pinocchio. You've got Marcel Lachelle all contenders for the Academy Award. Never before did you have three stop motion films up for that award. So I think there's this quality about stop motion, the handmade quality, you sense the hand of the artist in it that I think the younger generation is gravitating towards. So you're gonna see more of these films coming out. You'll always have CG, it's a great tool to work with. Um, But I think these traditional techniques are gonna have a, a renaissance.
0: That's awesome. You know, I wanted to ask you about uh, a more recent film that you were involved in Elf. You did all of the you did. You worked on the North Pole uh, yeah. the scenes, which were totally I loved personally, because it was a throwback to all of those claymation Rudolph and Santa Claus is coming to town yeah. movies from from uh, yesteryear. And I know yeah. that's what John Favreau kind of was looking for. Can you tell exactly. me the process of how that all came
1: about? Let me see. Oh, that's, that's a funny story. It's a good one, too. Uh, it's work. good work gets work. Uh, <laughs> we landed that job in, a, in an odd way. Uh, Joe Bauer was a, an effects DP working with John on a number of films, but currently working with John on Elf. And John was talking about the stop motion uh, in the film, and he said, do you know any stop motion companies? And Joe Bauer recommended us because we gave Joe one of his first jobs when he came to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked on Land of the Lost, the City Marty TV show. Uh-huh. And we hired Joe Bauer to be our cameraman for the animation. So that's work in the 90s. And then and then Joe remembered us and said, oh yeah, get the Kyotos, they can do this. And we met John and we hit it off and it was really great. Nice. Uh,
0: did, did he have a lot to say about how he wanted that created or did that come from you or was it a collaboration?
1: A collaboration, but it came from John. John was, he loves stop-motion animation. He's a real mm-hmm. fan. He loved the uh, the Rankin and Bass holiday specials, Rudolph, Reynolds, Reindeer, and Frosty, the Snowman, and all So, And he wanted that look. I mean, the art direction of the show went that way, very much Rankin and Bass. And he wanted, very specifically, he wanted to duplicate the snowman that Burl Ives played he wanted Leon Redbone to be the voice and be the character. So it is very, very specific. In fact, it was really funny. They wanted a oh, was a, one of the characters is a narwhal mm-hmm. that uh, that says, "So long, buddy. Hope you find your dad." Yeah. <laughs> John said, and he's great. John's just amazing talent. He said, when when the when the uh, when the narwhal rises, he wants to see that tusk come up out of the water like the Chrysler Building. He wants it to be like the Chrysler Building in New York. And we're, we're from New York too, he's from New York. So we knew exactly what he was talking about. But my brother Charlie did a bunch of drawings, character drawings of the narwhal. Hmm. And John had done like a little little scratchy sketch because John can draw, John was a good cartoonist. And he did this little sketch. So Charlie did like maybe 20, 30 sketches of different characters for the narwhal. And John said, no, 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 not that, not that, not that. It's just something simple, more like Rankin and Bass. So then we looked at John's drawing. Charlie did one just like John's drawing, and that's the one John went with. (laughs) John had a really good sense of what he wanted. It really harkened back to the simple toy-like design of Rankin and Bass. Mm -hmm. uh, So that was a lot of fun. We did some great work. In fact, I think they expanded. We ended up doing the opening titles as well.
0: Oh, wow. So, That's awesome. Yeah. And, th- and that
1: whole scene, I mean, just
0: there was, a, there was a magic of that North Pole scene that really pulled the whole movie together, you know?
1: Yes, yes. And there's a TV show on Netflix called Movies We Love, and mm-hmm. they do a documentary of the making of Elf. You should mm-hmm. check it out because it's John as a visionary. He had an idea what he wanted to do with this film, and you have to fight for what you want. Mm-hmm. And he fought, and he was right. We even talked to the Elf producers afterwards and they said, yeah, we wanted to make a, a Will Ferrell comedy. And they were kind of fighting with John who wanted to make a family um, evergreen. He wanted to make a classic. And John yeah. pushed him pushed his way and he got what he wanted. And yeah, Elf is a holiday favorite. It's going to be around yeah. forever. Rudolph. Um, yeah. And in fact, in, in our our affiliation with John on elf gave us the opportunity to pitch our alien Christmas book Mm -hmm. that we had written to John pitched it as a special. And when John took us out, we had been pitching it for maybe four or five years before, Mm -hmm. but we never sold it, but with John Favreau involved, yeah, we sold it to Netflix and we got it. We got to produce with John as the executive producer, me directing.
0: That's awesome.
1: So work gets work and, John was amazing. He's a great collaborator, great storyteller.
0: How did you end up on Team America World Police?
1: How much time do you have? That's, that's a long story. <laughs> I think we bid on it as an effects company when they were doing bids for doing the puppets for the show. We didn't get it. You know, we just we had never really done marionettes before, so I can see why. Another company got it. But during the preliminary, the pre-production, and the first test shoot they did matt and trey were not happy with the performances of the puppet and the team that was doing it they weren't getting what they wanted i think the company that was doing it was trying to give them not the company but the performers were giving them realistic performances with the puppets and matt and trey said that's not what they wanted so we were contacted to kind of take over the production and we read the script and it was outrageous it was funny but one of the scenes was the climax was the korean army and the american army on top of the golden gate bridge with a school bus of children and there's a big battle on the golden gate bridge and we said i, I don't know how you, you can't do this this is way too complicated it's impossible so we said no then they came <laughs> to us again and it was changed a little bit but we said no it's they had spent a lot of money on it but there was enough money left to do anything hmm. and then we got an offer from one of the executives of Paramount, and he said, guys, look, we want to make this movie. We'd really appreciate it if you do this. And and I said, okay. I just wanted two things. I, I didn't want my company to go bankrupt, and I didn't want anybody to yell at us because it's, it was impossible. It was really a difficult task. And we said yes, and we did it. We're really happy we did it. It was the most. It was the most difficult job I've ever had in my entire career. Wow. But really... One of the more, more rewarding ones because it was just a blast. A funny, funny as hell movie. Great topic. And Matt and Trey, you know, those guys are the hardest working guys. You know, you talk about genius uh, here in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Those guys are just hard working guys and they are, they're pretty brilliant. Trey was operating all the radio controls doing the voice because he was writing the script on a daily basis. He uh, knew the material. And, and uh, Matt was over there doing second unit directing. We had like five or six units going at the same time because the puppets didn't do anything, but that's what Matt and Trey wanted. They wanted the puppets to showcase their inability, these these super police force trying to protect the world and they're inept. They fight like this, you know, that was the humor. And we kind of fell into that. We kind of exploited the inabilities of the marionettes, which was the comedy that these guys wanted to bring to a serious Brookheimer type disaster movie, right? And
0: that's that's what I was gonna. It's surprising you said that was the hardest thing to work on because I would have imagined being someone who's never done anything with puppets like that. That you know, getting marionettes to do something that looks real is really hard. But that was what was so funny about it is it wasn't it didn't look real. It just looked like marionettes doing ridiculous marionette things, and that would have been easier, I thought.
1: So. Well, it is easier in the performance. as a larger leeway. There were some serious moments with Kim Jong Il and things like that, but it just it was a, it was an army of puppeteers and technicians to get those shots up there. In the beginning, we only had like one unit, two units shooting, and we were producing maybe one or two shots a day. You're Never going to get this film done. Then we had to multiply it. We had to get people on uh, on, uh, on on lift, on lifts um, on what do they call them? Uh, lifts for people, work lifts mm. to hang 15 foot strings. We had 80 puppeteers in Paris, just stringing all across the same The miniature scenery was like 90 feet by hundred feet. It was, they were big, big miniatures. The puppets were 22 inches tall. So again, getting the monitors up there, getting the communications up there, getting the strings and all the puppets organized. And then you start shooting. It just took so long. We had five or six units over one tremendous warehouse. And then we were shooting on a stage at Fox, 20th Century Fox, two units on two different facilities to get this movie done. It was massive undertaking, but the art direction, the humor, the writing, it was, it's a real joy. It's a a really funny movie. Yeah, no, it's great. And those guys, you know, it's funny.
0: They've done, they've done a lot of things uh, that are really, I mean, South Park, of course, hugely successful. Basketball. The Book of Mormon.
1: The The Book of Mormon Mormon is great.
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny is I actually am Mormon and that's what's so funny is that uh, even the Mormon church will, will put advertisements in the Wherever it goes, so a lot of people don't know this. So the book, so when that came out, because it is, it is a comedy. uh, It it is making fun of the religion, right? They, they, I I can't remember if it's both of them or one of them is a is a Mormon or at least a former Mormon. And uh, we, uh, but yeah, the church, um, everywhere it goes, they they put an advertisement in the playbill, and they have missionaries outside handing out
1: copies of the book Mormon so i i think if you take it the right way it's sort of like a uh uh it's an acknowledgement of all religions really it's yeah. not really putting fun at mormonism it's about the whole establishment of these organized religions and i think there is room to make fun of but those guys are really clever they're i don't think they really offend they offend with the details but the overall idea is they're embracing all these things in, in a big way too that's i think they're brilliance well, uh,
0: yeah, and that's the thing is that uh, you're right in that I've tried to talk with some people about this. Actually, some of the episodes I do are on specifically with scholars from Mormon, from the Mormon faith and and things of that nature. And, you know, there is a level of this that if you're looking at it with a logical eye is quite ridiculous. I mean, even the concept, right, the concept of Christianity, that, that, a, that a man died and rose three days later, and now everybody can just be forgiven of any bad thing that they've done is really kind of a ridiculous concept. If you're looking at it logically, because it's just seems so radical and out of out of possibility, there's an eye of faith to that. And so in that concept, it does make sense or or that, you know, Moses actually raised his arms and the Red Sea parted. It's just it, it's it's uh, ridiculous if you're looking at it with a logical mind and not a spiritual, faithful mind. And so Yeah, I I think that there is room for humor in that, just as there is in politics and any other thing. Um, When people get too offended by that stuff, uh, you know, there's room in the uh, there's room in the marketplace for all of that. So,
1: yeah, just open up, open up your your heart and your your mind, accept the humor. But your faith is something that is yours and it can't be taken away by other people's uh, opinions. You know, yeah, I should be able to enjoy it all.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah and I, I think also this is just a, a completely off-topic thing and we'll get back to to you and your work but it's it's funny to me i've been thinking about this a lot because i had I, my last podcast was with a scholar who talked about uh some of the some of the issue one of the big issues in the mormon faith which is the uh, uh the restrictions on priesthood for black men up until about 1978 and we talked about the progeny of that and and you know obviously it's very significant and and talking with uh, some of my friends, uh, you know, about this, um, yeah, you know, we have to have these discussions and we have to, when people get offended by that stuff, when they, when they um, feel the need to just defend at all costs, it it almost comes off like a, um,
1: almost like a insecurity in their own faith. Yes. Well put. Uh, that's, that's what I would say to Listen, reflect on it, and come to a contemporary understanding of what it means in today's world is something that you could do without losing your faith. It doesn't affect your faith. And if it does, how how deep is your faith? It's, it's, it's right. discussion. In right. that case, I mean, it's, uh, it's systemic racism. You have to say, okay, why? We well, human beings are all the same. What is it about a, a, an individual's color that would exclude them from this? Just talking about that. How does it? defile your faith really not- yeah and
0: it's almost like a thing with uh, sometimes the therapist would call whole object relations and that they can't hold two things in at the same time like they're either all good or all bad so you know like is it surprising that someone from the 1840s or 50s a white man would be racist no that's not shocking they all were right but for some reason because it's a leader of a faith we just have to defend and act as though that's not possible and you go is that Were they really that exceptional? They're a product of their time. And even if you do believe they are a prophet or they are working for God, they can work for God and also
1: be imperfect, (laughs) right? That's what we celebrate in Christianity. That we're all not perfect, but we're forgiven by this father figure. Okay. Yeah, but well put. I mean, that's what it is. And, And having that discussion is more inclusive, more engaging, and would just bring more followers to a faith not yeah. pushing people away, which is ant- the antithesis of what I think you want to do with your beliefs.
0: Yeah, um, and, and, and that's where it's it's getting and it's it's going to be interesting, I think, as a Mormon and in Christianity in general, but especially the Mormon church, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes in the next 30-40 years. In my lifetime, it really will be so
1: yeah, yeah, that that's right. I wonder too, we're we're having these uh moral wars right now morality wars and and it it doesn't bode well for humanity i think something's going to happen i see where it goes yeah
0: well you know sometimes also i think there's a pendulum swinging you know it was swung one way for a long time it's kind of swung the other way and i see uh the beginnings of maybe something that comes into the balance but who knows you never know what what it's going to be
1: i hope so i hope it swings somewhere in the middle because either extreme is kind of uh Right. yeah so
0: uh, going back to your uh, your work what would you say of all the pro I mean you've done a ton of projects you've had a third of a 30 40, 35 year career
1: um, w- was there one that was your favorite well killer clowns is a favorite because it was really our naivete in making films at that time we just did what we wanted to do blindly mm-hmm Given that project now, I'd be more intimidated by knowing what you need to do to do that. So that's that's a high point. Favorite? I don't know. Uh, uh, Marcel Lachelle hmm. at, at this latter part of my career is a true highlight where Team America was like one of the funniest things we worked on and the hardest. But Marcel is the sweetest. I think I'm most proud of that than anything. It's just a, a delightful, wonderful film. And it's a great time for it. It's about family, community, friendship, togetherness, co- all of that. And it says it in, a, in the most simple form. I mean, I know Guillermo's Pinocchio has those themes as well, more complex. I think the simplicity of Marcel Lachelle, the directness of those characters with that material, Speaks so well, so gentle to people's hearts, that I'm really proud of it. And it, it's Dean Fleischer-Camp, the director, his vision with Jenny Slate and Kirsten Lepore, the animation director, boarding all this out, and Nick Pally, the other screenplay writer. It's just the the collective minds just made something really endearing. I it, I hope it does well. I hope people are watching that film. Is it's good medicine for today. Yeah. Is there
0: if you had a, an opportunity like someone came to you one of the one of the the big you know the the big uh, companies came to you and said, all right, here's all the money you get to do your dream project. What would what do you think it would be? Do you have
1: something in mind that would be your dream? Oh well, I've got two big dreams, and we've been pitching them all these years. A killer a killer clown, not a sequel, but like an epic eight part series on Netflix or, or Prime that actually, we've got this charted out. We've been working on it for like the last 30 years or so. It's oh, just wow. an epic journey with all the characters, new venues, insights into the clowns as ancient astronauts visiting Earth centuries ago. It's a phenomenal epic that I hope we will be able to do. I think the fans would just die for it. They would. Uh, but then we've got this other idea that is just, really makes me laugh imagine uh in the uh the age of discovery when the world was flat and you have an ancient explorer going out to prove the world is flat and discovers that it is (laughs) and so i don't know if you're familiar with the ray harryhausen films to me it's an epic ray harryhausen type epic movie with monsters and stuff but with comedy it's a bunch of Italians on, on, a, uh, on a ship that go and they prove the world is flat <laughs> and change the world as we know it in the process. It's epic. It's one of those things in the early, this is the 90s we had that. We, <laughs> we, we were making these low-budget movie ideas, writing scripts for low-budget movies, and we said, why are we delving into the low-budget? Let's do something really big, a big, big epic movie. So we wrote this thing. we call it The Italian Odyssey. Nice. About a journey of, uh, of uh, a, a semen to prove the world is flat, and uh, it's great. I'm telling you, it's great. It's got the best ending I've ever seen in a motion picture story.
0: <laughs> I oh, would it. love to see that movie. If you ever get that off the ground, I I will be there when it comes out. Like,
1: a, well, if somebody has some money and some influence, please come to Kyoto. Brothers, we'll pitch it, and it's that would be the one that would make make me really happy cuz mm-hmm. it's great it's just fantastic Wow! It's, it's the world where all the myths and legends of the flat world come alive that would be that would be a, a, hero's, a hero's journey this guy becomes the hero within as a, uh, as a, as he goes through fire it's great
0: <laughs> that's awesome now you said you had some kids and one of them in the gaming industry is that right
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, my younger boy, uh, Tony. He's uh, works at Skydance. See, a Skydance Media or Interactive. Yeah, they did. Uh, they produced the uh, VR Walking Dead video game. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a he's, fun one. He's a programmer. He, he oh, I'm going to brag about my son. He invented when you when you get wounded and you want to bandage your arm. Instead Uh, of touching your arm and you get bandaged, he actually has, he did the math and the program to have you go like this, wrap it up and unwrap it by going on actually doing the physical action. I don't know how he does it. It's amazing.
0: Is it exciting for you to see? I mean, he's kind of following in your footsteps and being in the gaming industry.
1: Uh, Not at all. My my boys grew up with uh, coming to our shop, seeing all our monsters and stuff. And I never was the kind of guy that said, oh, I want you guys to take over my business. Mm. My older son, Nick, he said, that I don't want to do what you do. I want to make money. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, he's great, too. I, I'll plug him, too. He and uh, Blaine Harverson from Maid Warren and Jason Momoa have produced a brand new vodka called Melly. You guys no. should shop for it. It's a fucking great handmade in the United States with water from Montana. Fresh was the, the freshest water in the world. Check it out. So, both I've been very fortunate. My, both my boys, they're not in my business, they're doing other things that they love, and they're doing pretty well.
0: That's what's interesting about kids. You know, mine, mine are six, I have four, 16, 14, 11, and nine. And what's fun uh, is that they're all into their own things, and it's fun to watch them get passionate
1: about stuff, you know? Yeah. So, and as a good parent, you have to recognize you might. Introduce them to things that are your interest because there's a relationship there you want to share. But a good parent will recognize that they don't grab onto those ideas. You don't push it. If you're into baseball and sports, if your kid doesn't like that, don't push it. Let them find them. Give them a piano. Give them a guitar. Give them art supplies. Let them Give them the materials to help them find their passion. My parents, God bless them, they, uh, they knew nothing about what we were trying to do. But... We wanted film process. They gave us a camera. They were so supportive of our entire careers, just giving us the implements to kind of let us pursue what we wanted. I'm, um, yeah, they did, they did have a chance to see our killer clowns, so they they saw the culmination, visiting the set at the end of the production to actually see us with the actors and the giant sets and stuff. So, I'm I'm happy they were able to see that aspect of our career. Wow, that's what a parent does. We guide them. You don't you know, you let them find their own path. Yeah. I have a, I'm
0: a, I'm a big, you can't tell on video, but I'm six foot seven. So I played basketball and all that. And I have a daughter who's, you know, she's pretty tall for her age. And at the age of nine, it became very apparent that she was the athletic one of the kids. And I was like, you're my kid. You're the one who I'm going to, I'm going to mold you into something great. And I mean, the first year she went out there, I'll tell you what, she, She, I mean, destroyed everybody. She was really good. And then the second year she said she didn't want to play. And I tried to force her to play. I was like, no, you're going to play. And it was a disaster. I mean, like she, and she's very headstrong. This My daughter Piper is so headstrong and she just, she made everybody's life miserable to the point. I mean, the coach, the tip players, everybody just, they were, she just made everybody's life miserable because she didn't want to be there. And I finally halfway through the season had to just be like, I swear, Piper, I'll never ask you to play basketball again. Just please stop doing what you're doing and just finish. out nice. the season." And so she, so she finished out and now, you know, now she's a big artist. She likes drawing and, and all my kids have actually gotten into the arts. And so that's why they're so excited about me talking to you is because, my son is in, you know, he's into music. My, my two younger ones have started doing theater. And so this is, a, this is kind of a special one. Um, I really appreciate your time. I have a couple of more questions before I let you go. Um, these are questions I ask everybody just kind of about them. So what would you say is your biggest uh, success in life?
1: Oh, my family. My family, my boys and my wife. I mean, that's you know, I, I realized in early on in my career, I realized that all these accomplishments, these movies, these effects, all these cool things we're doing, it's just not it's not satisfying. It's really not. you're doing this stuff, and it's cool, it's fun, but you need somebody to share it with, and you you, you need something more. and uh, so when I had a family, and I never wanted one, i I, I didn't want kids, you know, when you're 30, 29, 30, 31. uh, I didn't want kids, but all of a sudden you're 33, 34, 35. It's the biology. I think. And all of a sudden I just want to have family. And I met my wife, Teresa, and we were about the same, same age, the same kind of needs and wants. And we had our family. And when I think back, that's, that's giving me the biggest joy. So my family.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And then what would you say would be your biggest failure and what did you learn from it?
1: Oh, my biggest failure, there's been so many. And I'd say with each failure, you learn so much, it makes you better. So they're not mistakes, they're not bad. It's like good stuff. Oh, what's the biggest, I, I think about it, my productions. Uh, Oh, well, without well, making people angry. Yeah, my biggest, oh yeah. I don't know how many people are going to see this. <laughs> Alien Christmas was the best thing in my career and the worst thing in my career. Not vetting your crew as well as I should have. I had people working against me that made what was my best achievement as far as getting what I wanted, a fucking nightmare. Mm. And I learned too late, switched it, it, turned around. I did what I wanted, but there was a point in there that was the worst. When I think about that project, I, I just get a stomach ache about all mm. the crap we had to deal with because of some individuals. Wow. Uh, i mentioning any names, but I do have the right to say it was the best and the worst experience of my entire career. Wow. I so much from it. Wait, like, like what? What do you mean? I simply put, vetting people, just finding wow. out when you hire people, at certain functions, you really have to drill the hell out of them and yeah. make sure that they're going to deliver what they want, that they understand the job responsibilities. And, uh, and that, that harkens back to now my experience on Marcel Lachelle, Dean, Kirsten, I and my brother Edward. They put together a really great crew. And they worked it and worked it to make sure they got the right people and it was a lovely group of com- a community of people that were working towards a common goal us included i'm a director i've made films i'm a producer but when i'm let's say a supervising animation director working on somebody else's project i know what you're supposed to do with the director i'm mm-hmm. that good soldier to give him what he wants to give them what they want the best i can do and I should have known that when i made alien christmas yeah you know but you it, I, I, like
0: what, I like what you said about about the failures that you you've learned so much i think you learn more from the failures than you do the wins i mean uh i remember i'm a, I'm a trial attorney and uh we had one case it was one i took over from another attorney and we ended up having to try it and just a tough case and uh Uh, it was the one case where we still, we won, you know, but we didn't win what we were hoping, you know, it was that type of thing. And uh, excellent attorney. uh, Well, one of the two attorneys on the other side were, were, was very good, learned a lot um, from that. But I remember thinking from that, from that we won, but I felt like we lost. And I remember thinking to myself, I never want to feel like this again. (laughs) <laughs> and it made me work so much harder the next time, and I—I I mean, every I've got, I've done a, I've done a bunch of trials since then, and yeah, I mean, it's I'm a completely different attorney from that experience, and so it definitely shapes who you are.
1: Yeah, so. that's it, and they're good things. I mean, it's it's painful, and the wounds are there are there, but you, if you learn from it, make sure it doesn't happen again. You're only better for it, and, uh, yeah. and that's what I've learned. So and, I,
0: and when you have a, when you're a family, it's funny. I was telling my oldest son, cause he's like, he sees my youngest son. He's like, dad, you never let me do that. I go, well, yeah, you were the test case. I messed you up. <laughs> he's going to be okay. <laughs> and, uh,
2: yeah.
0: Um, okay. One, one last question I ask everybody. Uh, cause I know you got a, a class to teach here. Um, so uh, someday, hopefully way out in the future, uh, you're going to pass away you're gonna uh you're gonna have a funeral and someone's gonna give your eulogy. What's the one thing that you hope someone says in your
2: eulogy? Um,
1: I, yeah. I i I hope that they thought I was a nice guy who was funny occasionally. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well well, definitely. I mean, you made you made killer clowns from outer space. You're definitely funny.
1: Yeah, I guess humor is at the basis of everything we do. Even when I have got another uh, concept idea about marriage, men in marriage and and husbands and wives. And uh, I it's got comedy in it. It just has to have comedy. That has to be like the through line that kind of ties all of the serious pieces together. But it's but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have a QR code on my tombstone and I'm gonna have videos that people could see with me talking to me at my at my at my uh my plot site.
0: Oh that's a that's a genius smart caskets. Oh why don't we we should get smart caskets out there. We should that's it you
1: You can speak to them you can talk and have memories old moves if you want or just say hey how you doing I haven't seen you in a while but put some flowers down here for me. I'm gonna go so, pa- I'm I'm
0: gonna go trademark that and I'm gonna hire Kyoto brothers to help me with the uh with the smart uh <laughs> with smart caskets so we can get yeah. those moving oh, yeah. yeah well listen uh this has been uh, a pleasure it's it's a it's definitely a, a bucket list item for me so the fact that we were able to talk uh it means a lot and I am grateful for your work because if there's anything that I could tell you it's that for me personally, the things that you did in all of these movies that we've talked about helped as a film, as someone who loves film and thinks, finds movies to be such an important part of his life, you helped shape me. And I'm sure there's millions out there like me. So the work that you've done has, has left a mark and it really, it really means a lot. I hope you're proud of yourself for that.
1: Oh, well, uh, thank you. I- I'm really, really happy. I-, I do meet fans who tell us tell the brothers that the film is a special moment for their father and them, that they might disagree on a lot of things, but watching the film together is something that brings them together. I hear a lot of stories about, about how parents share it with their children. And it's it, so this kind of feedback really makes this whole creative enterprise worthwhile. Cause that's, I mean, yeah. I'm expressing a joy that I have for this genre and for this film and the fact that people are responding to it uh, in ways that they uh, that they are expressing it. They're buying merchandise. They're really into it. I, 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 That's a great thing for an artist to have their work accepted in such a, a great way.
0: Yeah. Thank well, you. It's been accepted. And I appreciate your time and coming on. This has been the Edlow podcast. It's, I'm supposed to tell everybody to subscribe. I'm supposed to do that a bunch. I never really do, but subscribe to the podcast. We have a, uh, we have a lot of fun stuff coming up and Steven Kyoto. It's, it's really been a pleasure and hopefully, you know, hopefully we can have you back one day. I'll, I'll keep in contact with you. So oh
1: sure, do that after another project. Uh hopefully it'll be the Italian Odyssey (laughs) or maybe (laughs) Killer Clown uh If that happens,
0: I need to be on the list of of podcasts that you go on to talk about because I would love to see that movie
1: for sure. All right. Okay, well thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it was great conversation. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. All right, we'll see you